Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. How is the media doing when it comes to Trump corruption? And I want to paint the media in one obvious, simple, monotheistic, monochromatic brush. But I do want to evaluate, and I want us to evaluate how it's doing. I have the concern, I think there is a concern, that in the shorthand of describing the bar letter, there is words like, ah, he's cleared, which then seems to jibe with the president saying full exoneration, which then seems to jibe with their move to try to punish anybody who thought otherwise. I brought up something yesterday that I want to give a somewhat related word to today. And it's not entirely, it's not the perfect word, but it's a very useful word to know. And shout out to TV show Billions. The word is Zugzwang. Zugzwang is in chess. When you force your opponent to make a move that your opponent would really not like to make. And I think there is a rhetorical version of Zugzwang that's been going on. And the only reason, the, the primary reason, well, not it's only it's not chess, but the word is not perfect, is it's not actually forcing. But it's pretty close. It's pretty close to forcing. The zugzwang that's going on is when the now president, then candidate, Trump says, the election is rigged. And everybody responds who doesn't like the president saying, no, no, it's not rigged. The election is great. When later it looks like there are problems with the election, you have to sort of backtrack. It's kind of hard. Forcing your opponent to disagree with you and then your opponent is then stuck with a position they kind of wish they maybe didn't have. Bob Mueller's a fraud. And then getting a bunch of people who don't like the president say, no, no, Bob Mueller, unimpeachable, strong jaw, was in the military, said that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It's got to be great. Rhetorically forcing opponents of the president to endorsing Bob Mueller, maybe to a greater degree than they would have liked. They could have said, well, let's evaluate Bob Mueller. Let's not just put all our faith in that. In fact, then saying, hey, we can't do anything until we get the Mueller report because that'll tell us everything. And then, oh, wait, we're not going to get the Mueller report? Zug's way. And now more recently, Donald Trump's saying, ah, the media, fake news. Can't trust the media. The media's terrible. And getting all sorts of people opposed to the president saying, no, 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 the media's great. We got to support journalists. Everybody re-up your membership to your local news outlet or your national favorite newspaper. Endorse the newspapers. They're our hope. Providing endorsement that sometimes is justified and sometimes isn't, but can be overstated. I think we have to be careful. I am not here to bash the media. I don't think there is one thing that is the media. But I do think we have to be vigilant. Someone has to watch the watchman. So if you wanted a word for the day, it's way. Forcing your opponent to do something your opponent doesn't really want to do. And my quasi-application of that to the current rhetorical moves by the president. Let's take some calls. Rick from Lexington, Kentucky, go ahead. The point I would like to make to you is, is that right now Trump's 
support is 85% in the Republican Party and 45% across the country. And I just want you to try to help me understand uh, how can he have that much support? If I say something wrong correctly, Trump's a bigot, he's a racist, sexist, homophobe, and he's a liar. How do you raise your hand and say, I'm going to get in that line and still support him? Yeah. My senior senator, three weeks ago, maybe a month, stood on the floor of the Senate and said, we're going to do everything we can do to gerrymander and suppress the vote. So if you're an American, how do you stand in that line and raise your hand and say, I'm a support, I'm a, I'm a Republican? Now we're going to start this whole fight again over for 10 years over health care. And by the way, this is the same party that put kids in cages. So my question to you is, how out of those 85% in the Republican Party, 45% across the country, which are who? Who are those people? The first thing I'll say is I don't want to stand as the apologist, advocate, or even chief explainer of the current right wing, but I don't want to dodge your question. He says white people. Yeah, it's almost entirely white people. It's even a bare majority of all white people, even a somewhat strong majority of middle-aged, non-college-educated white men. It's a pretty strong majority of of non-college-educated white men in general, particularly in certain states in the union. I think there's 17 states right now where Trump has not only strong support in the Republican Party, but majority support among the entire electorate in those states. So then the other question I heard you ask was, how come? Well, this, I think, is one of the most important questions, and I won't give it entire justice right now because I don't want to overly simplify it. But I also don't want to fully dodge it. Several things. Here's where I'll lead. At this point in the show, there are a lot of people for whom their first identity is conservative. Their first identity is Republican. Their first identity in defining that is anti-democratic and anti-liberal. That with the rise of right-wing media, with the rise of right-wing radio, with the rise of Fox News, with the rise of think tanks, we don't need to call it a conspiracy because it's been out in the open, with the vast mechanism that has been put in place to embolden, to empower, to organize a group of people and create trolling culture. So they think that the definition of being conservative is not merely, I don't know, trying to limit the size of government services, that the definition of being conservative is not merely even just reading one's Ayn Rand, but the definition of conservative is in fact trolling, is owning the libs. When that becomes the first principle for a movement, opposing the enemy becomes a first principle then the person who opposes the enemy, who's the chief troll, the troll in chief, that that person gains support among people who share that principle. Now, a lot of listeners to this program are thinking, ah, well, yeah, it seems like the election might have got stolen. Geez, I wish somebody who actually got a majority of the votes or even came in first place in numbers of votes would have been president. Geez, I wish we weren't putting kids in cages and taking away people's health care. And geez, I hope someone will save us. Oh, look, that guy with a strong jaw who's in the military. He will investigate. He will save us. The people who's got to save us is us. The people who's going to save democracy is, in fact, democracy. People who are willing to do a little bit more to make the country a little bit better rather than a lot worse. It, it is not the man on the white horse. It's probably not a man who is going to save us. We have to work together to do that. I agree with you that we've got to build movements. We're reading today from Dr. Bryant Welch's book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. This is from chapter one. Do you think there might be something just a little off in America, psychologically speaking? Of course, there's something wrong. We all know it. And in many quarters, our national behavior hovers on the brink of a very different, even deranged society that many fear is leading to fascism. Many of us play a game of ain't it awful about Donald Trump, and we talk in the latest psychological jargon about how odd and dangerous he is. But that's not really the issue in America, is it? Millions of Americans voted for Donald Trump, and the rest of us were unable to defeat him, the seemingly most incompetent person ever to run for president, and certainly the most bizarre. 
The real issue in America is what's wrong with our own minds. The 300 million of us who swim in the American pond that has not just led to Donald Trump and his obvious bizarreness, but to this massive breakdown in our psychological stability as a nation that we all feel in the deepest parts of ourselves. A decade ago, I wrote a book, State of Confusion, that addressed this problem and described an ominous series of psychological assaults to the stability of the American mind. In that work, I sounded an alarm over the then-emerging erratic psychological behaviors that have led to what we are now witnessing full-blown in America, the destabilization of the American mind. The election of Donald Trump was but a symptom. Harvard University law professor Lawrence Tribe summarized State of Confusion as a vitally important investigation of how a cadre of ethically challenged political operatives and their religious and journalistic allies have gradually distorted and disabled the minds of ordinary Americans and have all but crippled the once extraordinary mind of America. Tribe added, it is not too late for us to reclaim our identity, but we will succeed only if we take to heart the lessons so lucidly laid bare by the remarkable work of this insightful psychologist and experienced political activist." End of quote. We did not heed Professor Tribe's advice, nor have we appreciated the issues I raised in State of Confusion. Instead, the destructive process has continued unabated and unrecognized, and the techniques used to manipulate the already vulnerable American mind have grown more powerful. The psychological processes and dynamics I described back then are very much the ones that are operative today. They are merely worse. We have now seen shocking states of psychological denial that our planet is hemorrhaging. Each new season spews forth spectacular new forms of environmental earthly protests of how the planet has been abused, its miraculous natural rhythms so powerfully, rapaciously disrespected. Unprecedented storms, fires, hurricanes, and our newest bomb cyclones give voice to Mother Earth's dismay. And yet millions of Americans, despite this evidence, go deeper into psychological denial. We dismantle our already inadequate environmental regulations created to safeguard the planet, hopefully before it becomes uninhabitable. Is something psychologically wrong here? We have successfully taken the excess out of our First Amendment right of, to free speech, by arguing free speech does not give one the right to holler fire in a crowded theater. But at the same time, when our Second Amendment says we cannot abridge our state's rights to have a militia, we are in some robotic logic required to give every angry person full access to weapons needed to quickly snuff out the life of everyone in that theater or school or concert or nightclub. Any angry person in America, be they terrorist, super patriot, or just someone who'd like to end their unhappy life with a glorious bang, is allowed to commit their own grand form of suicide with semi-automatic weapons that can literally kill another human being every second. Our taxed and now terribly compromised form of mental reasoning has led us to this paralysis in our problem-solving ability. We understandably blame the NRA, but how do we explain their minds? And how do we explain our inability to defeat their minority effort when we look in the faces of the grieving parents of Sandy Hook or Stoneman Douglas victims? Remarkably today, when our most precious surviving youth stand up bravely in protest, they are referred to as Nazis. We can understand these American minds and we can change them, but only if we will put the American mind itself front and center in our awareness and study of it. It's not just our environment that is deteriorating from the stresses we put on it. It is also our minds. In reissuing this supplemented version of State of Confusion, I'll show why the inherently vulnerable, increasingly traumatized, and badly manipulated American mind has reached a point that now threatens America's democracy, maybe even our survival. Focusing on Donald Trump's obvious impairments is a dangerous distraction that keeps us from attending to this real problem. Fortunately, I believe we do have the knowledge and resources to combat the true threat and reclaim the American mind with its glorious commitment to the freedom of the human spirit. But we must confront the reality of our situation now. We don't have another 10 years. I am a clinical psychologist and attorney and have had an unusual opportunity to understand current American political behavior, not only from work with patients, but also in my time spent in Washington, D.C. as a national spokesperson for psychology and mental health. My life passion has been the human mind as it shapes how we feel in the interior of our own personal private space, how it creates the way we experience our most intimate relationships, and how it influences the way we conduct our public affairs. State of Confusion by Bryant Welch.
If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's one o w n g o l d one own gold you're listening to the Tom Hartman Show. Some of you are watching it. Thanks to all of our local affiliates. Thanks to everybody who supports this show. Shout out to my home station, xray.fm. We love you. At least I do. We are now on the air with Thomas Wolf. He is with the Brennan Center for Justice. Earlier and nearly every day, we talk about democracy. At least we hope to. And when Elizabeth Warren was asked, what's the first thing you do in the first 100 days? She said, well, I address anti-corruption. Why? Well, because it will make all our other priorities more possible. It was a deeply wise thing to say. Lawrence Lessig, in his TED Talk, said, I am not saying that my issue is more important than your issue. In fact, your issue is more important. Healthcare is more important. Climate change, more important. Wealth disparity is more important. I'm just saying that dealing with democracy is first because we can't get to that stuff if we don't get democracy working first. If the organizations in our country who are offering better research and analysis or are offering research analysis, it is hard to find anybody better, any organization better than the Brennan Center. We hugely appreciate their work. Thomas Wolf is with us now. Thomas, what are the key things you're working on right now? Uh, so I've got two things in the hopper. I mean, I think the main thing that folks might be really interested in, in right now is trying to convince the Supreme Court to finally do something about extreme partisan gerrymandering. We had oral arguments here in D.C. yesterday. I was in the House for that, and I'm happy to talk a little bit more about what I saw and what I heard. I'd ask this, I guess. One of my concerns is that if the only people who care about addressing uh, gerrymandering or gerrymandering, it was Elbridge Gerry, as I understand. I never met the man rather than Elbridge Gerry. But of, of extreme warped redistricting. If, if the primary concerns happens from a bunch of libs and a bunch of blue states and blue states do something about it, red states don't, then that could actually be a disadvantage to blue state voters. How is the message of trying to address the redistricting in a sensible way, how is that playing out in different kinds of states? And what do you think might happen next? Well, the interesting thing, particularly right now for the court, is that there are two maps that are in front of the justices, one from North Carolina, one from Maryland. The North Carolina map was a gerrymander created by Republicans to disadvantage Democrats, but the Maryland map was a map that was created by Democrats to disadvantage Republicans. So the court now has an opportunity to rule in a way that's going to deal setbacks to both parties and make it clear that you know if you care about having a representative accountable democracy like our constitution requires you should get behind this particular ruling and listen to what the court has to say and so what have been the most recent judicial pronouncements i knew that a couple of years ago folks were hoping that justice kennedy would say that extreme partisan gerrymandering itself was a violation of the voting rights act i think i have that right but then he stopped short of that what's the current state of play yeah, you're exactly right. For 30 years, we've been looking for the court to finally say not just that extreme partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, which uh, kind of an interesting factoid is that justices from you know, Republican administrations and Democratic administrations in terms of their appointments all agree that extreme partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. What they haven't been able to figure out yet is what the legal rule should be for figuring out when a map's extreme and when it's not. We thought Justice Kennedy might be a swing vote to finally form a majority for a rule. He stepped down. He was replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. But it seemed like, on the basis of last year's oral arguments, that even Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito could be in play because they were troubled by this. And this is important for what's happening now. Justice Kennedy last year said, well, what if you had a law 
that was passed by a state legislature that said when we draw the maps, we have to disadvantage one party uh, entirely and advantage another. And Justice Alito, the chief, they, they also thought that there was something constitutionally wrong there. That's exactly what's happened in North Carolina. That's exactly what's happened in Maryland. You've got the Democratic governor, former governor in Maryland, and uh, Republican legislators in North Carolina both saying on the record, the reason why we drew the maps the way we did was to max out the seats for our party and lock out the other party. In that kind of universe, it, it might be that there's more than just four or five votes in play. There could be up to six. As I recall, part of the challenge, you'll, you'll need to rhyme me here because my memory is hazy here, was it problems of proof, which is how do you know when something is extreme partisanship, or maybe even more so, what's the remedy? How do you make sure that the next map is in fact okay? What would you say is the trickiest legal conundrum that not just partisans would be concerned about? Yeah, the interesting thing is that I think if your main contact with partisan gerrymandering legal talk is through, like, magazines. You, you may get the sense that this is, we're almost like Nick Cage, like in the National Treasure movies. We're trying to find some deep constitutional secret that no one's been able to figure out for hundreds of years. The court actually knows, and I think this term, it's seen that these extreme maps violate, like, really basic constitutional rules in a lot of different ways. So the question for the justices is not really how does it violate the Constitution? The question for them is a much narrower one, although I'm not going to say it. it's a simpler one, which is how can we do something here, really you know, curb the worst abuses without producing hundreds or thousands of new cases because yeah. we can't handle all of those. So what's the limited way to get in? And that's what plaintiffs need to give them is not, here's why it's unconstitutional. It's Here's why it's unconstitutional, and here's how you can get in to make some changes without getting into too much. Yeah, so what's the, what's the standard or what's the answer to that? Uh, try to navigate between that rock and that hard place, that Scylla and Charybdis of, on one hand, doing nothing, and on the other hand, having you know, hundreds or thousands of cases. Yeah, I think there's a legal answer here, and then there's a practical answer, and the two of them go together. So the legal answer is to focus on extreme partisan gerrymanders, and this is something that we outlined in our friend of the court brief to the court, where you want to focus on situations where the people drawing the maps had the intent to max out their seats and lock them in for a whole decade. You want yeah. to look for cases where that's actually happened. And there are a couple things you can look at to try to suss that out. So, like, normally these kinds of extreme maps don't pop up except when one party controls the whole redistricting process. So if there was compromise or bipartisan compromise in the map, maybe that doesn't get knocked out. And you can also look at things like how was the map put together? Was one party completely excluded? Was it run entirely by party leadership? If you focus on those things from the area of law, it only puts a few cases or a few maps into play because that stuff has only happened maybe six times with congressional maps this decade and about, I don't know, about a dozen times at state legislative levels this decade. The practical argument is if the court doesn't set a line now to take out these worst abuses, the worst abuses are going to become the norm next decade because the facts in North Carolina and Maryland are as terrible as they're ever going to get. And if the court doesn't say this is unconstitutional, then map makers are going to view that as a green light to you know, completely take advantage of the process. So there's yep. a legal answer and there's a practical need to do something now. And what do you think that is? What do you think that standard is? You know, I, back in the day was a law clerk for an Article Three judge on the Ninth Circuit. And so, you know, there'd be debate. The funny thing to me was that most of the debates, when you'd get somebody else's bench memo, uh, were, were nits, where you'd, you'd respond with, uh, with, well, you put a semicolon in the wrong place. Uh, <laughs> but the, instead, of, instead of actually arguing over the key principle, that, where I right. wish there would have been much more argument. But what do you think is that key principle? What do you think is a standard that you could imagine because uh, it's not going to be, we know it and we see it, and it's not just going to be the words, well, you can't do it real, real bad. You can do a little bit, but don't do it real, real bad. What's the way to say, don't do it real, real bad, that you think Alito and or Roberts could get behind that you might predict or, or advocate for? Maybe Justice Kavanaugh as well. I think that the, the message that the court should be sending is relatively simple. What they should say is when one party controls the process and it uses the process to max out its seats and lock them in for a full decade intentionally. That's an unconstitutional extreme partisan gerrymander and the map should be struck down and redrawn.
so that if you can prove that there was extreme partisan gerrymandering, it gets knocked down, and then it's incumbent upon the policymakers to make a better one, and hopefully that one isn't extreme. Exactly, and it's yeah. not like it's that hard to do it. Yeah. Well, Thomas Wolf, thank you so much for sticking with us. Thanks so much for calling. Appreciate the Brennan Center's work on trying to make democracy a little bit better, but a lot worse. We'll be right back. What are the things happening out there that you want to offer as solutions, stuff that people can do? We can tweet. We can call in. We can talk to our neighbors. Invest your dollars in things that are germane or at least in some degree of alignment with your values, whether that's your retirement fund, whether that's taking a few bucks every month, every week, every paycheck, paying yourself first, trying to remember that lesson. Also, how you spend your dollars, what bank you put it in. I'm realizing that's something that I got to do a little better at. What else? What are other things that you work on? Here is Ed from Riverside, California. Go ahead, Ed. Hi, Tom. I mean, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I take it as a compliment. I uh, I'm grateful I live in California because we don't have voter registration interference out here. Yeah. But I have lived up and down the East Coast, and I've seen it back there. I wrote a letter to my senators and my congressmen, and I asked them, since when we register to vote, how come that's not protected under our papers? How come some bureaucrat can just go and say, oh, you, you don't have the right to vote here anymore? Under the First Amendment, we have the freedom of speech, right? Yep. But our only voice we have to tell our government who we want to represent us is through our vote. Yep. Why isn't that protected under the Constitution? It's a good question. It is protected under the Constitution if there is a 14th Amendment uh, equal protection uh, infringement upon the right to vote. But characterizing the right to vote as a fundamental right is something that a better Supreme Court would do. And it's one of the reasons why uh, I have made the case that uh, the progressives have under-prioritized the court. Donald Trump got put in office. The Christian coalition stuck with him. Folks stuck with him in significant part because they understood the primacy of the courts, how important they are. Primacy is the wrong word because they don't come first. In fact, it's the ultimacy. It's the fact that they come last. I wanted to remind about the Lochner era. This is one of the things I wanted to make sure we covered this week. Lochner era was the, uh, based on a, the Lochner case is why it got the, the era got its name. But a time when the due process clause was used to invalidate congressional actions that limited corporate power. And it was a dark time in American history. It was a dark time that coincided with the Great Depression, that coincided with the biggest wealth disparities in history, that coincided with the time in history that I think is most similar in many respects to the time we're in right now. In the Lochner era, they'd figured out, ah, if we, if we just get the courts to invalidate whatever democracy does, then we don't have to worry about democracy too much. This is why uh, FDR tried to enlarge the court, was in fact so that the ultimacy, the last word, was something that was pro-democracy rather than anti-democracy. That's why there has been such a big effort to dominate the courts. If we had prioritized courts more, and if we do going forward, and I think about in time spans of decades, not just election cycles, but we need, a, we need courts who recognize the fundamental right nature of the right to vote, identify it as a fundamental right. So when it is infringed, you've got to have a really high standard upon which you have to clear a really high bar in order not to be guilty of unconstitutional action. Appreciate the call. I'll give you a couple of mine. The a couple of things that you can do if you're wondering, well, what can I do? Like, these are things you can do if you if you live in a blue state. And that's not everybody who listens to our show. Thank goodness. But if you live in a blue state, here's something you could do at the statewide level. You actually could push for automatic voter registration at a statewide level. I started in Oregon. It's now happened. Shout out again to the bus project that has happened now in multiple states around the country. You can do that in lots of blue states, particularly as a blue trifecta. I wish it would happen in purple states and red states. Everybody, we should care about everybody voting. We should, have, we should have a robust argument about what we believe. But it is easier to get done because right now, unfortunately, the battle lines are, not, are, are really almost pro-democracy and anti-democracy in too many ways. Push for automatic voter registration. 
That's something that can get done at the state level. If you live in a blue city, which most cities are, even in many, many, many red states. And again, I wish it the kind of thing we can do in more red cities. I wish it were things, something we could do in red and purple states. But public finance of elections, that's something that is just happened in Portland, Oregon. It has happened in New York City. You go to your city. It's something that could happen in mid-sized cities. You live in a college town or near a college town. Go to them and say, hey, we should make sure that you don't have to be bought and paid for to serve. You don't just have to be a phenom, as, the, as Time magazine described Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. You don't have to just be a phenom in order to win based on small dollar elections, that we can have public financing. And all of a sudden you do that, and then the resource that would have been spent on that can go to statewide races, go to congressional races, etc. It's one of the most strategic moves we can make. Those are just a couple of them. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. Let's go to Laura from WCPT Ain't Afraid of Me in Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Laura. My name is Dr. Laura Chamberlain, and I'm Dr. with an election Hello. integrity. Hi, how are you doing? I'm with an election integrity group in Chicago, in suburban Cook County, called Clean Count Cook County, and we do these things all the time. We work on all of these issues. We did pass in Illinois automatic voter registration, but there's so many aspects of our elections that need to be cleaned up. And I'm just calling to encourage people, you can start an election integrity group in your county or find an election integrity group, there's many counties that have them, and start working with them on all of these issues. There's automatic voter registration. There is cleaning up the electronic voting machines, right? The vendor-owned and operated, you know, electronic voting machines. We know that this is an issue, right, because Ivanka Trump is... Uh, you know, building voting machines in China. <laughs> so, Ivanka Trump is building so, voting machines in China. That seems like that story should have blinking lights around it, but keep going. Exactly, exactly. There's so many issues around our elections. Yep. In Chicago, we're having this runoff election uh, for the mayor and for a few aldermanic wards. And, you know, we train poll watchers to get out and make sure that the laws are being applied fairly. We are doing so many things all of the time. We advocate for state laws. How did you all get started? Laws. What was the first? How long has it been going on? And how did, for people who are thinking, oh, may, if, do I need to find something like this that might exist or I need to start my own? What was the first little nugget that got you cracking? Right. Okay, definitely. So the stolen election in 2000, yeah. Bush v. Gore, got us all awake and alert. And then a group started Illinois Ballot Integrity Project, and they are still operating in some of the counties in Illinois, Kane and DuPage and McHenry, and we're trying to grow our election integrity groups. We all talk to each other. We all try to work with each other. So you can look and see if there's already a group in your county, okay, and join that group. If there's not, you can go to cleancountcookcounty.org, and I have a video right up the front page talking about the ways that you can come up on these issues really, really quickly. And by the way, you're my favorite, Dr. Laura. Excellent. Yeah, I'm the progressive one. So, yes, cleancountcookcounty.org. Yes, yeah, come on in. Everybody come on in. 
Thank you so much, so much, Dr. Laura. Mark from Valley, Washington, you're on the air, sir, and on Free Speech TV. Here's the thing. You were quoting Ford with our great national nightmare. I think it began after Watergate, didn't end. Because that's when the conservatives consolidated. Exactly. That's when the Koch brothers decided to pour all their money into the elections. And with the court appointments that have gone through, and the ones that are going to go through before we get this evil person out of office, I hate to say that I think our great national nightmare is only going to get worse before it ever gets better. So much of our faith, so much of our analysis, and by our I mean the sort of zeitgeist, the collective understanding, is thinking that we are in a world that we used to be in, and even then misunderstanding that world. And I couldn't agree with you more on the Nixon point. That was the dawn, not the sunset. It was the beginning, not the end. And thank you for your call, Mark. Anything you want to shout out that you're looking forward to, that you're working on, or that somebody else is working on, you want to give a little light to? I've just been getting involved with the local Democratic Party because I don't see anything else. I'm not a hardcore Democrat, but I'm certainly not a Republican. And you really don't have much choice. Uh, under, know, understand, understand the political parties are vessels. The Democratic Party was a party that was strongly in favor of slavery before it became the party that was standing up for civil rights. The political parties in a first-past-the-post system are vessels. If we can put good people into those vessels, whichever vessels they are, we can make the world a little bit better and a lot worse. Mark, thank you so much. Have a good one. Paul from Lucerne, California. Go ahead. Hey, first of all, I'd like to thank you. You're an awesome fill-in host for Tom. Thanks, man. I really man. like your silver lining approach. That is awesome. Appreciate that. Now, the silver lining in Trump is I'm in the local Democratic Party. Yeah. All right? And it's twice the size as it was when I first joined. Lots of people are getting active. How do you think we got AOC? Yep. The local Democratic Party put her on the ticket, and then she got the run. So if you don't like the way the Democrats are operating and you don't like who they're standing up in your precinct for you to stand up, join your party. Put, make, you make the argument, no, we don't want to vote for this guy. No, we want this person over here. She speaks to our values. She's more, you know, in line with us. This guy's just the incumbent. Who cares? Yeah. And that's what they did over there, AOC. She picked a 10-term incumbent's butt. All yeah, right? And the there can be able to do that. Several things I could say to respond. Thanks for the call. And the what I just said was the political parties are vessels in a two-party system. I think that's a useful way to think about it. And how do we inject those vessels with as many white blood cells as possible? And I don't mean racially. In fact, sometimes I mean the opposite of that. But how do we have as many antibodies, sort of pro-health, sure. pro-democracy forces into our institutions? Anything in particular? Maybe it was AOC. Anything else that's given you a little hope or that you want to shout out or give encouragement or light to? I really like the fact that all the people that are joining our party and bringing different points of view to our party, and I like the fact that young people are joining the party. We have high school kids in our party now. In Oregon right now, there is a bill that the governor just said that she would support, put on by the bus project, hat tip the bus project, which begat the Young Voter Alliance. The uh, to lower the voting age to 16. We might be talking about that as another thing. One of the underreported stories is what's happening in the census. The census matters for lots of reasons. One of the reasons it matters is for districts. For districts, yes, in legislative races and also congressional races. If we're going to have a majoritarian country where the decisions more often of who's going to be elected more often comport with the majority of human beings rather than with not the majority of human beings, We've got to do something about those districts, how they're drawn, and that means we've got to mess with, yes, gubernatorial races, yes, legislative races, but one of the underappreciated routes to pro-democracy efforts are races for secretary of state in your state. That's another one. Another one I'll plug is voting systems generally. For people who are saying, well, I don't know, and I'm not a big Trump fan, but I, I never can't, can't imagine myself registering the Democratic Party. Part of what I'd say is, listen, all political parties are as vessels. You go to the vessel that looks like the one that is a little bit closest to you, and then you try to have the impact on it that you can. One of the reasons I like local action is it isn't just you piling on to whatever power structure that is operating in Washington, D.C. But the other thing is that I do think that voting systems, from star voting to ranked choice voting to multi-member districts, ways that we can innovate and let our states and localities be laboratories for democracy, 
as Brandeis suggested, is another way that you can get engaged. And here's one. I want to play Adam Schiff's piece, what he just had to say, because another thing we can do is stand up. Another thing we can do is be strong. And here's Adam Schiff when people are saying, oh, because there are no charges brought by Bill Barr, you should resign, Adam Schiff. You should do what we say because the institutionalists weren't willing to disrupt the institutions. And here's what Adam Schiff had to say instead. And as, it, as you have chosen, uh, instead of addressing the hearing to simply attack me, uh, consistent with the president's attacks, uh, I do want to respond in this way. My colleagues may think it's okay that the Russians offered dirt on a Democratic candidate for president as part of what was described as the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign. You might think that's okay. My colleagues might think it's okay that when that was offered to the son of the president, who had a pivotal role in the campaign, that the president's son did not call the FBI. He did not adamantly refuse that foreign help. No, instead that son said that he would love the help of the Russians. You might think it's okay that he took that meeting. You might think it's okay that Paul Manafort, the campaign chair, someone with great experience in running campaigns, also took that meeting. You might think it's okay that the president's son-in-law also took that meeting. You might think it's okay that they concealed it from the public. You might think it's okay that their only disappointment after that meeting was that the dirt they received on Hillary Clinton wasn't better. You might think that's okay. You might think it's okay that when it was discovered a year later that they lied about that meeting and said it was about adoptions. You might think it's okay that the president is reported to have helped dictate that lie. You might think that's okay. I don't. You might think it's okay that the campaign chairman of a presidential campaign would offer information about that campaign to a Russian oligarch in exchange for money or debt forgiveness. You might think that's okay. I don't. You might think it's okay that that campaign chairman offered polling data, campaign polling data to someone linked to Russian intelligence. I don't think that's okay. You might think it's okay that the president himself called on Russia to hack his opponent's emails if they were listening. You might think it's okay that later that day, in fact, the Russians attempted to hack a server affiliated with that campaign. I don't think that's okay. You might think that it's okay that the president's son-in-law sought to establish a secret back channel of communications with the Russians through a Russian diplomatic facility. I don't think that's okay. You might think it's okay that an associate of the president made direct contact with the GRU through Guccifer II and WikiLeaks and considered, that is considered a hostile intelligence agency. You might think that it's okay a senior campaign official was instructed to reach that associate and find out what that hostile intelligence agency had to say in terms of dirt on his opponent. You might think it's okay that the national security advisor designate secretly conferred with a Russian ambassador about undermining U.S. sanctions. And you might think it's okay he lied about it to the FBI. You might say that's all okay. You might say that's just what you need to do to win. But I don't think it's okay. I think it's immoral. I think it's unethical. I think it's unpatriotic, and yes, I think it's corrupt and evidence of collusion. What can we do? What do we do if we are concerned that democracy is under attack? What are you doing? Not just to highlight the bad news, but to make some good news. I'm Jeff. This is the Tom Hartman Show. 
Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. Hi, everybody. This is Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith, sitting in, honored to do so. It is time for Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Bob Nay, you there? Yes. Hi, Jefferson. How are you? I am well. It's good to hear your voice. What's cracking? Well, I wanted to get into something that may not be a huge headline today across the news, but it's a big deal, and it's the Trump administration, they're beginning the process to remove mortgage guarantors from the government oversight of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Yep. And of course, when the housing bubble burst, there was a great big security mortgage meltdown, and that had the crisis we know about in 2008. It affected worldwide financial crisis. And a lot of people at that time held that the Congress was unwilling to rein in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now, on this one, I did, just a matter of disclosure, I chaired the Housing Subcommittee, and Maxine Waters was my ranking member, and we were the ones that, along with another subcommittee, oversaw for quite a few years uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And at that time, uh, generically, people said, oh, well, they were helping too many low-income people with loans, but, you know, the task was to make sure that people, just because they didn't have high incomes, could maybe gain access to the housing market. Yeah. And I mention that because... On the surface, Jefferson, what we're going to hear is that, well, we need to have, you know, a new regulatory scheme for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they are quasi, you know, private enterprise and quasi-government. And all the analysts from Goldman Sachs said that, that this should have only a limited effect on the housing market. And they said uh, that they're skeptical of sweeping changes, uh, there's some constraints on the authority of the Treasury, etc., but then Goldman Sachs says, we expect the Trump administration to proceed cautiously to avoid the disruption of the market. And the reason I bring this story up with all that's going on is this is a big deal. They're going to have to be extremely careful how this administration carries this out, what they do to the housing market. Are they just going to let there be a free reign and back to, you know, very little oversight of these entities? And will they not have these entities also help low-income people? So there's a lot to this story as it will develop. It does luckily have to go through the House and the Senate. So, the yeah. And, you know, Kant says go to motive. What do you see as the motive here? It seems like one is, well, let's clean up the system. The other one that I get nervous about is, well, I know the power and the money that's at play here and the desire to go to further lengths to privatize the banking system is in the interest of people who want more money in their private banking system. But where do you see as the people pushing this? Well, I don't think it's as simple as the administration's statement about, you know, wanting to make sure that they're under the regulatory schemes. They're already under receivership, a conservativeship by the government, and so where I see it going is the latter of what you mentioned, which is the possible, you know, privatization, and then those entities would not have to have as part of their charter helping people of low to middle income. They wouldn't have to have that, just like today a bank doesn't, unless they have a CRE, as it's called, you know, with the investment area. So, yes, I see it as a potential step where they will be free with, you know, billions and billions of dollars to not have to do something to, again, help people into the American dream of housing. So I think it's not something just on the surface. You know, there's a motive behind what this is. Haven't figured it all out yet, but I think it needs to have attention. And that's actually something that should be a significant priority 
in a bipartisan way. The only people that really benefit from a concentrated wealth banking system are the people who own the concentrated wealth banking system and the people who are there, you know, the people who sell them stuff. So, well, that's right. It's a big, big deal. There is a push to privatize this stuff. And the other thing I want to say, and I'm so grateful you brought it up, and for our smart listeners, in the hopes that they'll nerd out on this kind of thing, it's not as headline worthy as so many other things that come up. It doesn't seem to be so headline worthy. But meanwhile, it's where all the money is. Oh, of course. And, you know, there was a very broad simplification at the time in 2008 of, well, the Congress did too many loans to people who were low income and couldn't afford to pay. That's not the truth. There was predatory lending in the system. And then Fannie Mae had to be audited, and the people auditing it were in bed with them. And, so, you know, it's a very complicated piece of the puzzle. Now, they did need to be taken under the government. There's no doubt about that. But, again, if it's just no problem now, all strings are cut, and let's just see how they function in the private sector, then they will not have a government task of trying to help not just the wealthy to make money in the system, but to help people who need housing. There are certain things that aren't rocket science. They're important that are hard. Like, when we think about what government should do and shouldn't do, I don't think government needs to invent my telephone. I don't think government should do that. But insurance services and banking services, those things aren't rocket science. Most of the innovation in banking services is usually just turbocharged leverage that can turbocharge an economic crash. It's not like inventing the new debit card every week. Right. It doesn't require the Manhattan Project on banking. What it requires is good fiduciary responsibility to take good care of the money that is deposited. Absolutely. Anything else you want to make sure we cover? Oh, yes, real quick. I know we're out of time, but the FAA, it's amazing. They changed the aerodynamics of the plane. Tom Hartman, by the way, hit this on the head last week. They changed the aerodynamics. They changed the computer system, the upgrades. But what they didn't do was make the pilots go into flight simulators. They let them use their iPads. Yeah, from what I understand, they were going fast. They were trying to hustle to beat the competition, and therefore they didn't give enough training. Airbus. Airbus, yes. Thank you so much, Bob Nay. We appreciate it. Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. We'll be back on the Tom Hartman Show. Do you ever listen to Tom Hartman music and just want to get the playlist? And just sort of rock out to it for an extended period of time? Do you ever just want to go to the club and rock out to Tom Hartman music? I think we should release something, like a CD, like a Time Life record collection. I don't know. Go to Tom from X-Ray in Portland. Love X-Ray in Portland's my home station, xray.fm online. Tom, how you doing? It's the best radio station in the world. Well, you are a wonderful person. I would like to jump gears into the Medicare for All thing. I have an idea that I'm sure other people have thought of it. I haven't heard of it. You've heard a phase of Medicare where we drop the age of eligibility from 65 to 60. It makes a lot of sense. You could potentially get a lot of people being treated for ailments that they're delaying until they reach Medicare age, so we could save a lot of lives. We could actually get a lot of people maybe to retire early because they no longer have to have a group insurance policy while working full-time for an employer. So lots of interesting things could happen by lowering that. What I haven't heard anybody suggest, and I think would be really helpful in arguing with our opponents on the right, is the next letter in the alphabet of Medicare is E. So Medicare E, early intervention. Medicare E, early intervention. Lower the age to 60, and at the bottom of the scale, make any expectant mother and any fetus eligible for Medicare. And they can keep it until the age of five. Now, the window of for-profit insurance market is age five to 59. So the idea here, I want to eliminate private insurance eventually, but I recognize that 20% of the economy is health care. So the conservatives who are kind of afraid of Medicare for all, think of it as just this pipe dream. They quickly point to that. There's not enough doctors. There's, mm-hmm. there's an insurance industry with a lot of people working on it. So my plan allows the insurance industry to still profitably market to a group of people who are not going to be spending nearly as much money. And if you had everybody up from uh, prenatal to five on Medicare. And why, and why prenatal? And why prenatal? Just so the prenatal care is covered? So here's the, pre, now here's the prenatal part. It's, this is the ultimate, I would call it Medicare E for early intervention, yeah. the, ultimate, the ultimate pro-life plan. 
We're going to take any excuses off the table. Poverty. So you get the, the so table. you get the right wing. You get the right wing uh, neutralized right. to some we're degree gonna, because they we're should doing be. This, yeah. We're doing this for the babies. It's we're interesting. Save a lot of lives, and we're going to have all of those children attend school when they first get to school. They will all be able to see. They will all be able to hear. They will all be vaccinated. Well, that's a whole other story. Um, and then, five years later, I want to lower the top from 60 to 55, and the bottom raise it up to 12. And so essentially, when we pass this Medicare E, the idea would be this is an 18-year plan. Yeah. So at first, it's Medicare E for early intervention, and then it becomes Medicare E for everyone, and then Medicare E for every thing. So it covers dental. It, well, I thought you were going to say it covers vet care. No, 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 no. Not vet care. I, I, I'm, yeah, I love the dogs and cats, but... Uh, Todd, I appreciate that. And, and so just to briefly summarize, Medicare E, or, uh, you didn't say party, you just said Medicare E, and start as you expand, rather than going to Medicare for everyone, immediately you go to Medicare early intervention starting out, and not just lowering the age at the top, but also starting at the bottom, so you kind of squeeze in between. It's an interesting idea, both because you have raised uh, an important point, that if we're going to have an honest discussion about health policy, first of all, we should be honest that private health insurance in health care does not offer the benefits that its uh, proponents suggest, and that is a, a soft way of making the strongest argument in favor of single-payer health care. If we're going to be honest about the discussion, we'd also have to be honest about the shock to the system that it would be, the transition that would be required from the health non-system we have now, we don't have a healthcare system now, to some health system. From the market chaos that we have right now that employs a lot of people, that would require significant transition. And I like your, I, have, I, have, I can argue both ways on whether, on the political advantage of saying, well, we're going to start qualifying fetuses as people. People. I'd want to hear from the pro-choice community about what, what they think that would do to the uh, argument around the pro-choice argument itself. But the economics of dealing with the early life and end of life, the morality of prioritizing on the beginning of life and the end of life, I think is unassailable. And a world in which kids were covered and where and that's one of the things that Oregon has done uh, you know is is healthcare for healthcare for kids and kids are some of the least expensive people to cover and also for seniors there's a good moral argument for that I'll offer one other thought there's lots of thoughts I could offer but I want to offer one other that if you are able to have, and one of the reasons why the FDR era was so important, why the Great Society was so important, why the Tip O'Neill era leading up to Reagan was important, was that if you have a team that cares about public policy and that in their application of caring about public policy, they care about the middle class and poor people, and you're thinking over a 10-year time frame, and you have a 10-year time frame, you can do lots of policy making, and you can do it gradually, and you can win lots of things, if you're in trench warfare, where you win a little bit, the next team wins a little bit, you win a little bit, the next team wins a little bit, and you hope to just move your trench up and have your trench not move back too much. If you have this whipsaw that we've had for the last 40 years, but a whipsaw that generally has been moving in the conservative direction, a nine rand direction, a privatization direction, then it's harder to do that. Well, we'll go to five years, and then we'll go to 18 a little bit later, and then whatever. I mean, heck, Barack Obama was the first Democratic president to be able to do any darn meaningful thing on health care since what? Since Lyndon Johnson, yeah? We haven't been able to do the big thing that we've hoped to do, either fast or slow. Maybe slow gets there better. I like the call. We'll take more just in a minute. Denise from Calumet, Michigan. You're on the air on Free Speech TV. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I need to kind of remind people, because I'm going through this myself, in spite of everything I'm doing to try to change things, and calling Congress, et cetera. But it seems like ever since the Mueller report came out, Trump is going harder and faster at the people, and I think he's trying to take revenge. Sure. And I believe that people are going into a severe political depression, because I do it, and you have to remember that depression is anger turned inside out. And if you can get the depression back into the anger phase, but not be so angry that you're destructive, but be productive in doing what you can do to help this mess, then you're not walking around so depressed about all these torrents of things that are coming at us from the Republicans that are 
following in Trump's footsteps, which is sad. He is not fit to be president. Denise, it's such a helpful point. The uh, it, it, it's odd, but the timing of when I have been guesting recently, it, it always seems like something really big, uh, bordering on, overlapping with, squarely within the uh, arena of a constitutional crisis comes up. And I realize that as I try to be a little bit more in touch, a little bit more aware of my own kind of emotional state and aware of other people's emotional states, what you're saying is so critically important that the tool of the authoritarian or among the tools of authoritarian is to make us hopeless and depressed. And you're, you're so right. And how do we, with self-care, with care for others, and I really appreciate that and haven't thought of it sufficiently. And how do we make sure that that anger doesn't just turn, as you said, inside out to depression, but that we pivot it either by maintaining it or get it to something that's positive, that's impactful, doing something. Heck, I guess that's even why we're having the topic we're having today. You have to try to do what you can do and know that you're only one person and you just can't give up. I mean, you know, when you think about how overwhelming it is, people can give up. But yeah. the Democrats did take the Congress. There is hope. There is still investigations going on. The lies are out there, but the truth is also out there. And we have to keep going after the truth. Denise, thank you so much for your call and for your wisdom. Take your anger, pivot that not inside out to depression, but towards positive activity. Whether you're doing that local community, whether you're doing it statewide, whether you're doing that with direct service, take that negative action, turn it to something positive. My sign off, you've heard it before, I should explain it quickly. Most of the problems that face us, in so many respects, aren't anyone's job. Whose job is it to fix the climate? Whose job is it to make sure that an education system is suitable for this century? It's nobody's job, so it has to be everybody's job. It has to be all of our jobs. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. With you, democracy is possible. You are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 